welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What's so scary about the number 666? Who or what is the beast? Is there a connection between the religious and mathematical significance of the number? Hello and welcome to the 666th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those revealing questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And uh, given, given today's uh, number for the show, uh, we couldn't resist the uh, targeting 666, uh, which has terrified millions of people who really don't know anything about it. And, I mean, I must say, I don't really know much about it myself. So we welcome your calls this afternoon. The numbers are 800-449-1240. That's from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. And 401-766-1240. That's from... Here in northern Rhode Island in our listening area, and we will monitor emails as well. Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for emails. It takes a big man to admit he doesn't know something, Ben. Uh, maybe directions. Well, I mean, the whole motto of our show is everything you know is wrong. That's so right. really, we don't know anything at all. <laughs> That's right. L. Joseph Latender is an author and educator in the city of Chicago. He's one of uh, my oldest and dearest friends. Uh, we grew up together, I think, during the Cretaceous period. And um, his master's thesis was written on the book of Revelation from the Bible, uh, where the dreaded number 666 can be found. Uh, Joseph was by my side, as a matter of fact, during the last few visits to the Village of Voices in 1971 and 72, and was an eyewitness to some of the phenomena. He did valuable legwork and research for me on several other cases back in the day, including the Bristol, Connecticut poltergeist case of 1975-1976, which we haven't really ever talked much about on this show. He also knew the famous ghost researchers at Lorraine Warren. Yeah, so, L. Joseph Latender, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Hi, Paul. How are you? Good to be here. Good to hear your voice. Well, it's good to hear your voice as well. So, let's, yes, let's start with something, something sort of simple. So, what are some of the popular beliefs about the number 666? Uh, generally, the number 666 is taken to be... Uh, a symbol for an evil entity. Uh, it could be the devil himself. Uh, it's believed to be malevolent fallen angel, uh, sometimes called Lucifer. And at other times, it can be associated with a figure called the Antichrist, uh, who's supposed to be an evil world ruler that will appear at the end of the uh, time, uh, near the end of the world, and uh, is associated with the uh, beast one of the figures that is uh, mentioned inside the book of Revelation. Okay. Why are these beliefs inaccurate or just wrong? Or are they? That's a big, uh, you know, complicated question that we've been packing. Um, that's more interesting is, uh, before we get to that, is how these beliefs came about. Uh, one of the things is simply popular entertainment. I remember in the 70s going to see a movie called The Omen, which was one of the number one movies um, that year. And the basic theme of that is uh, Gregory Peck's character as a changeling. Basically, his child is murdered and another child is brought out uh, in the hospital. And that child is the Antichrist and how the incarnation or the son of the devil. And at a certain point, uh, as he becomes convinced, that uh, his child, or who he thought was his child, might be that, uh, he actually looks underneath the child's hairline while he's sleeping and decided to find the number 666. 
somewhere on his body and finds that, that confirms that his child is indeed the Antichrist. Uh, so that kind of, I think, made it extremely popular and um, rather well-known at the time, though it had been around this association of the number 666 with this figure of the Antichrist uh, had predated that. Hmm. Okay. You well, look like you have a yeah. question in your mind, Ben. Uh, I always have questions in my mind, <laughs> but I do not quite know how to word it. So, okay, well, after you, essentially, now, am I wrong in saying that a lot of the the uh, well, you might call them uh, fundamentalist Christian beliefs, uh, or at least modern modern ilk Protestant beliefs uh, of the of the evangelical quality? You know, with all due respect to them, sort of came about really. Um, they weren't very early. They came about more or less in the um, <coughs> Chewbacca there. Uh, it came about in the 19th century or the late 18th century, so that these were really not known to the early church. Yeah, that's quite right. Uh, it's a relatively recent um, invention, and the um, date that comes to mind is the 50, Joseph, we have a message from our station manager here. Uh, we're having audio problems, and we're going to ask you to call back on a different line if you can do that. Okay? All right. So we'll uh, we'll hold that thought, as they say, and uh, we'll talk to you in a moment. So just call back on a different line. Thank you. Okay. Uh, L. Joseph Latender, everyone. Uh, Joseph and I were colleagues in arms, so to speak, in the earliest days of, of paranormal research in the 1970s. Uh, he was involved in the Village of Voices case. Uh, that was my first case, uh, we, and we were um, uh, we, it was we were sort of like a couple of kids. Or we were a couple of kids trying to figure everything out, you know, Ben. <laughs> trying to journey through this thing called life. And you you grew up with the uh, legends of uh, Joseph Latendi. You've never met him, unfortunately. He he lives in Chicago, but uh, <laughs> he just seemed like a cartoon character to me. Well, he's a wonderful time. guy. Wonderful, yeah, I know. unique, completely unique. Oh yes. So uh, we're getting him back here, and we'll see if we can get better audio on that. Sorry about that uh, in the beginning. Okay, so are we back? Yep, I'm back. Okay, that's a little better. Okay, very good, Joseph. So uh, it, just uh, so we've talked about uh, the origin of the popular beliefs about the number six six six, and uh, you were talking about dispensationalism and how these beliefs came about. So uh, yeah, again, we're, the major emphasis was this is something relatively new, and uh, it gained, um, you know, again, popular um, acceptance, particularly in the United States. Uh, it's best known through the uh, Left Behind series of books by uh, Tim LaHaye, uh-huh. uh, at least one of which was made into a movie. Uh, these were popular and entertaining bestsellers. Um, and uh, even before that, there was a writer named Hal Lindsey. Mm. Yeah, you, you and I both read his books when we were young. Yes, uh, Lake Race Planet Earth, Right, I believe, was the the, uh, the major title. And uh, it was basically taking the book of Revelation and other books of the Bible and kind of fitting them into this uh, scheme. 
and um, well, among other things, you know, uh, fighting people to attempt to uh, get conversion. Sure. Okay. Well, um, so the the point being that uh, this is not an early belief. Now, going back to the uh, earlier days of the church. A lot of people don't realize that the Bible was essentially, as we know it, was, and particularly the New Testament, was essentially put together with the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 A.D. It didn't like spring ready-made out of the upper room at Pentecost, the Bible. So um, essentially, what were the early Christians' beliefs about Revelation? And, and, and am I um, wrong in assuming that the church, in, in remembering rather that the church, was a little bit nervous about including the book of Revelation in the New Testament? Is that correct? Uh, it was, but there were a number of books um, that were uh, controversial. Uh, Second and Third John, for example, as well as Revelation. And it took almost a thousand years before the 27 books that are now accepted as the New Testament were universally accepted. There were some books that were in that were uh, later on removed from the list and some that weren't accepted, like Revelation, that eventually were added to the list. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Nicaea, which is uh, early 4th century, around the year oh, 325, if I remember rightly, uh, basically is one of the earlier times where we have the list of the 27 that we have now, but this wasn't universal mm-hmm. um, for a long time. And the one that had the hardest time getting in was the book of Revelation. Okay. All right. What um, what what were the positive um, aspects of that? Why why was it accepted eventually as a legitimate book of the Bible? Because uh, it, it is a little weird. You get, you have to admit it's a little weird. You know? It's a little weird to us uh, because of the literary form which is used, uh, which is uh, basically apocalypse, which is a, a literary form uh, with its own conventions. Um, by comparison, let's say you're reading or writing a mystery story, well, you know there's going to be some kind of crime, usually a murder, and there's going to be some kind of detective, usually with some kind of eccentric or outlandish aspect about his personality or character, and very often in the process, they run afoul of the, uh, you know, the police department that's local. These are elements that you find in almost every mystery story. Um, the problem with the Apocalypse as a literary form is we only read one or two. It's that many. At the time, uh, so far we have recovered something in the neighborhood of 200 other Apocalypses that are not wildly, uh, widely known. Hmm. So it strikes us as strange, but there would be some familiarity with that as a form of literature. Wow. So it's really like the one in the New Testament and the one that people know, but when the author was writing it, he was following certain literary conventions that were associated with the form. Okay, now... So it would not have been quite as strange to the people that originally encountered it. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, the number 666 has a lot of odd mathematical implications as well as whatever theological implications there are. It's the sum of the first 36 natural numbers. It's a triangular number, so it can describe three-sided shapes. It's also a rep digit, a palindromic number, uh, a Smith number, and it, the, the prime factorization of 666, it's just, it's also a, a prime reciprocal magic square. I mean, you can go on and on with this. 
what given the Greek influences in the early Christian church, uh, is it possible that uh, most of this mathematical stuff, things having to do with 666, which, which the Greeks essentially came up with, uh, could there have been a Hellenistic influence? Uh, and that's the, why the number 666 was used by... In the book of Revelation, I mean, am I, I'm just spitballing here, but I wonder if there's a connection with the Greeks. Uh, generally, most of the commentators are inclined to think that it's more of a Jewish influence. I see. Uh, rather than uh, Greek. Okay. Uh, first of all, Apocalypse is a Jewish form of uh, literature, uh, not a Greco-Roman, at hmm. least originally. Okay. It's a, it's a form of resistance literature. It, it emerges, you get some of it in the book of Daniel, for example, it emerges during the Maccabean era, the time where, among other things, the uh, Jewish holiday of Hanukkah finds its origin. Right. Uh, where there's this pressure uh, to Hellenize uh, the Jewish uh, people. This is after. Uh, this is under the successors of Alexander the Great, so who great, conquered yeah. the Middle East along with many other things out there, and they're really trying to push the Jewish people into accepting basically the Greek religion, uh, the worship of Zeus, and all of these standards, and the Maccabeans are actively resisting it. Mm-hmm. And this seems to be the condition where this kind of literature develops. So uh, a religious literature, a literature and religious intent that is trying to encourage resistance to basically uh, apostatize, to abandon the religious faith. And there would have been reasons why, in historical context, John would have chosen that format. Okay. Uh, so, but yeah. But to get back to six six six, I'm most of the commentators, and I'm inclined to agree with them. See, this is more of a Jewish thing than a um, than a Greco Roman thing. Mm, okay. So, how would the uh, now a lot of a lot of people say today? Well, you know, I, I and you, you and I were involved in a conversation a long, many many years ago, uh, circling around the Quinnipiac College at the time, and a um, particular minister who was leading the campus ministry there, and he uh, in, was very frustrated when I told him about certain early early Christian beliefs. And um, I said uh, he essentially was so frustrated. He said, "I don't care what the early Christians thought." So I mean, what <laughs> you know? So I mean, what did the early Christians think about six 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 and the, the whole scenario around it? Um. See, that's kind of hard to tell what the early Christians thought because there's very few early commentaries on, as a matter of fact, no early commentaries on the book of Revelation. Uh, so very common, and it wasn't that much focused on. So we have to go to more recent um, people who tried to explore it. And again, the way into that is through the Jewish understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as soon as you're going into the Semitic mindset, you have to realize that language is being used differently. Yeah. Uh, Rome was about law, among other things. Uh, Greek was very philosophical language. And when you're talking law or philosophy, you're using language, you're making it sharper and sharper. You're making it more precise, uh, a laser-like focus. Uh, Semitic languages, as certainly in biblical times, tend to have a, a different approach. They tend to accrue more and richer meaning rather than you know, like shaving off nuances of a word to making it more precise. Uh, an example would be, you know, the word for soul, which could also be the word for breath, which could also be the word for life. Mm-hmm. That would have like three meanings wrapped up in one word. Um, so the uh, 
Revelation uh, kind of uses language that way. And uh, so what would 660? Uh, six uh, first of all, we should also comment that there's at least some versions that give the number 616. Really? Okay. I yeah. was going to ask, why not so, 777 or 555? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's several things going on. Uh, first of all, something called uh, a Jewish custom called or method called gematria or gematria. I've only seen it read. I haven't heard it. So I'm not sure of the pronunciation. Yeah, what's going on there is basically each number in the Hebrew alphabet is given a certain number. A left, the first letter would be one. And so forth. That the second letter would be two, and so forth, and That's so correct. on. Yeah. Uh, through all the letters. So giving a number would be a way of basically making a reference or even a code to a particular meaning. So if you do that, uh, and if it's six 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 rather than six one six, one possible interpretation was it would be the uh, Hebrew version of Caesar Nero. Yes. And, um, so that would be one meaning. You know, we're talking here about Nero. Uh, the other thing would be the uh, meaning given to individual numbers, uh, where seven is the number of completion. Uh, in Genesis, on the seventh day, God rests from his work. He's completed the work. So numbers, uh, you know, success, completion, finish, that's the number seven, the number of perfection. The number six is a number that symbolizes incompletion, imperfection, and even failure, and saying it three times, three times, this emphasizes that. Mm-hmm. Sort of, many scholars would do the most likely meaning of 666 would be, we're dealing with Nero, and it's going to be failure upon failure upon failure. This is not going to succeed. And again, the point of the work is to reassure Christians at that time to remain faithful in the face of Roman persecution. Okay. Joseph, you brought up a very interesting transition that I think we should discuss, and that's that everybody thinks this applies to today. You know, the the popular understanding of Revelation is that it's applying to our future, or perhaps even our present. But um, that, I, I, at least in my seminary education, and certainly, um, you know, it it doesn't apply, as you say, Nero, perhaps, but should people be worrying about this as a prediction of our future? I don't think they should. Personally, what do you think? Well, I'm inclined to agree with you. I think people look at the book of Revelation almost like they might look at, let's say, uh, the prophecies of Nostradamus or, you know, even their own uh, horoscope. Uh, it's, Revelation is pointed to the future in the sense that the message of the author is basically stay faithful uh, to the Lord Jesus, because in the end, he's going to win. He's going to overcome Rome and the Roman Empire. So to that degree, it does look forward to the future, but I mean, the Revelation, if you look at the first few verses and the last few verses, is clearly a letter. And he's trying to address the author, the situation at that time. And it was meant to have meaning to the people who were receiving that letter in the latter decade of the first century of our era, rather than, you know, looking forward uh, to something. And then, of course, the problem there simply is historically, every few years there's another apocalypse predicted. Well, uh, I have to interrupt you here. Okay. 
I have to interrupt you here for a moment, Joseph, because we received a, um, a text from one of the staff here. Uh, it said, fun fact, one of the telephone lines you were using today is 762-W-O-O-N. The numerical equivalent is 762-9666. We had to stop using it on the air because people refused to call it. It is now an inside number. So the synchronicities continue to multiply. So, um, okay, so I, th- I think that's uh, a, a very succinct sum-up of the, of the thing. Do we have, a, we have a call? No, we don't have a call. Okay. So you, you've scared everyone to death, Joseph. So, mm-hmm. okay, very good. Uh, so why don't we um, continue on? Is there anything else you'd like to say on that subject? As we discussed before the show, uh, there's only so much you can say about this. Uh, much isn't known, and, and a lot of things are simply not accurate in the popular understanding. But is there anything else you'd like to add before we move on to another subject? Well, generally, the, um, if it was going to be summarized in one word, it was, that word would be context. And to context, understand this, yeah. we need to look at it within uh, the context of the book of Revelation. We need to decide what the book of Revelation was. Mm-hmm. So that means we need to see its context as a particular form of literature that would have been familiar uh, at that time, though not familiar to us, uh, the historical circumstances in which it was written, as far as we can figure out. And the problem with all the uh, letters of the uh, New Testament, there are 27 books, and uh, 21 of them are letters, include Revelation, and I do. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like reading the old Dear Abby or Ann Landers column, but only getting the answers. And not seeing the original letter, you have to kind of infer and work your way backwards to what the situation is being discussed. And that's what happens within, um, you know, New Testament studies. We have, in many cases, the answer is a response to a situation or a question. Mm-hmm. But we don't know what the original situation or question was. They have to kind of do all sorts of work to get backwards to what the original situation was. I think of that line uh, from the... Understand it. Yeah, exactly. I think of that line from Star Trek, the motion picture... Um, and Spock mentions to Kirk, it, it wants an answer, referring to the, whatever, the V'ger, the Voyager probe. And Kirk responds, I don't know the, I don't know the question. So perhaps it's an analogous situation. Ben, did you have any points? Because I have one more question for George. Uh, well, no, not, not more of a point, more of a comment, really. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of shows how, how, um, the Book of Revelation is a very interesting book because there's so much interpretation involved, and we have, no, like you were saying, there's just there's just no background to it whatsoever. So I mean, I can see how it would have gotten out of hand today, where people were like, "Oh, geez, six six six, neighbor of the beast, or whatever, six six seven, or whatever." Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's it's just another spooky story that just, or like not even a spooky, it's just something that's unknown that gets turned into some sort of like spooky piece of folklore that doesn't really mean much. Well, it's the thing. It almost becomes an urban legend, I would think. But, Joseph, one more question before we leave the subject, uh, and this will probably bring us past the break, but the question of who wrote the book of Revelation. I mean, obviously, there's a long um, train of arguments that can be made for who wrote anything in the Bible. I mean, the Pentateuch was supposed to be written by Moses, but the time doesn't add up and the styles don't add up and all this sort of thing. And the same thing with Revelation. Uh, it's, po- it's popularly believed to have been written by St. John the theologian, as the Orthodox would say, or St. John the Divine, as most others would say, uh, the, you know, the uh, reputed to be the youngest apostle, but he would have been well into his 90. I mean, wh- what say you about who wrote this, or was it uh, was there more than one author, or do we just have no clue? 
Uh, there's certainly uh, some controversy. One even uh, one commentator even suggested John the Baptist, but that's been uh, largely uh, rejected as a somewhat eccentric point of view. Yeah, I never even heard that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, like I said, largely been dismissed. Uh, in my own opinion, it was not uh, John who was one of the 12 and who was uh would have been associated with, let's say, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. Mm. I think we're dealing with an entirely different person. Um, and again, it's hard to know for certain. Uh, one of the uh, telling points for me is, um, well, repeatedly, several points in the book of Revelation, John is describing, the author is describing this vision uh, that he has, and he sees 24 thrones, and makes it clear with that 12 of those, are the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament, and then the other 12 would be the 12 apostles. It seems to me very peculiar for him to be writing this down if he was one of the 12 and already portraying himself as being up there, you know, in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. He's still alive and writing. Uh, I, what has been suggested, and I'm inclined to agree with this, is the uh, one of the reasons why books are accepted in the New Testament. Okay, I have to interrupt you. I'm sorry, because we have to take our break, uh, but we'll, we'll come back to this thought uh, shortly after. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone Valley, now celebrating its 70th anniversary on the air. WON, not the Blackstone Valley. <laughs> but uh, 1946, uh, in case your math is as bad as mine, but 70th anniversary, congratulations to ON 1240. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Romeo Berthiam inviting you to join me every Saturday morning from 6 to 9 for the Saturday Show. This all-request program includes music, news, sports, weather, and all sorts of community announcements. And what a great way to start your weekend. Join me this Saturday morning. And welcome back. Uh, we will discuss some charities that Ben and I have adopted on the show later during our announcement period. But let's continue our conversation here on Behind the Paranormal with our good friend L. Joseph Latender, childhood friend of mine, lifelong friend, and uh, a uh, scholar of great uh, respect in my eyes, certainly in Ben's as well, a leg- legend in Ben's eyes. Pretty much, yeah. I grew yes. up hearing stories of, of uh, you all the time. <laughs> <laughs> some of them good. Some of them good, I should. Yes. Very good. Okay, so so simply to finish up our, uh, and move on to another subject, but uh, so you were saying about the uh, the authorship of the Book of Revelation, and uh, if there are any you want to finish that thought up, please do. Ah, uh, yes. Um, well, basically, one suggestion was that the books that were selected for the uh, inclusion in the New Testament were supposed to have been written by pretty much the first generation of Christians, apostles or Saint Paul, and those who wanted the Revelation to be included. Uh, would have had a reason to, or to believe, connect a uh, book of Revelation uh, with the biblical figure, with one of the twelve apostles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. but I just don't yeah. think the evidence within the text really supports that. Sure. Okay. Well, there we go. Well, lots of questions, everyone, on the book of Revelation, particularly the number 666, which we both assure you, and I guess all three of us, and even Josh, our producer, would assure you, don't worry too much about it. You know, Joseph, I've always liked the Jewish point of view on all this, which is essentially, 
you know, uh, it, what's difficult is living. When it comes to dying and what comes after, worry about it when the time comes. You know, concentrate on living a good life. So I, I, I think that's a nice, simple, and uh, sensible advice, personally. So, uh, okay. Yes, I would agree. Yes. So... 1970, 1971, 1972. Um, I was, uh, you were, good Lord, 15, I was 17, and uh, yeah. the, the village, time flies and you're having fun, right? And uh, here we have the uh, Village of Voices case, and if you remember, I had this, this idea that, gee, maybe these are souls in purgatory. And uh, you didn't come on the first expedition, but you came on the second, and uh, there were several visits after that. And... Um, what do you remember about that case? We've talked a lot about it on the air. We have a whole chapter of it in our new book. What do you remember? But we really haven't case? had anybody else that was involved in it give their perspective. No, actually, you know, an eyewitness to a major case that we've talked about for years. That isn't on us. CBS <laughs> and, on, and on this radio, you know. So, Ben, why don't you ask the questions? Well, I mean, you already asked the question, so. Well, you go, well, belay that, as we'd say in the Coast Guard. Why don't you... Um, you know, you, you grew up with legends not only of Joseph, but of the Village of Voices. Well, I mean, I've lived with you my entire life, Dad. Yes, uh, you have. So until recently. So, Joseph, what was your perspective on on this on the whole Pomfret case? Oh, well, as Paul said, I was uh, in the second expedition. Uh, the first time um, I had heard about the history, of this uh, abandoned village somewhere in the woods of uh, northeastern Connecticut. Uh, that was associated with voices. Paul had gone there with another crew earlier and had brought back some very interesting photographs, streaks of light, um, uh, let's say the inside of a cemetery that seems to be the center point of the activity. Uh, everything was blurred, but on the outside, things were clear. And uh, asked me to come along. Uh, one of the uh, remarkable phenomenon, hence the name of the uh, place, uh, was voices being heard which could not be recorded on tape recording. So we went there. It was, um, I think, the, the, commented that it started off a little bit like uh, the Blair Witch Project where we basically parked our car, went into the woods and set up our equipment, but our uh, language was a little less profane. <laughs> um, Somewhat, yes. Most so of us we were seminary students. Yes, that too. Uh, we met with a local historian named uh, Harry Chase, who was a remarkable person, mm. uh, who informed us and showed us various pictures and things of the history of the place. And um, we set up recording equipment to try and catch things, and we divided into two groups. As I recall, it was Halloween night, of course, and um, and there was a full moon. Yeah, that, that was a pure coincidence. We had no intention. It was Halloween weekend. I think it might have been Halloween yeah. day, but... But yeah, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. So it was arrived. I was, you know, the hall of beauty and that New England was. So there were stone walls, that, um, you know, cellar holes where houses had once been. Uh, we set up recording equipment and kind of one group, myself and another person, uh, with very basic, very primitive uh, tape recorders and. Yes. Um, kind of waited and nothing happened uh, while Paul and a few other people uh, wandered off, came back and picked us up, and we started going along the trail. It's quite dark now. Uh, it's definitely night. One of the persons that was with us, uh, kind of almost her adult chaperone, uh, an older man, I believe in his late 30s or 40s. Yes. Son, yeah. who was, uh, it was Mar- Marcel was his name, yeah. Uh, 
yeah, this was a very, you know, kind of serious-minded, uh, not at all frivolous uh, human being. I'm bringing up the rear mm-hmm. uh, with him. I actually turned aside trying a flashlight over a stone wall that was on the side of the path we were going, and then rejoined the group and suddenly noticed that he wasn't with us. Uh, he'd stopped. I go back to him, and this person is like in tears and totally paralyzed and called everyone back. And, uh, again, he was just, like, overwhelmed, um, a full-fledged anxiety attack, it seemed, looking back, um, and made it quite clear as we asked him questions that he wanted to go forward, but was physically unable to. He just couldn't make himself go forward any further. Uh, so we turned around and uh, went back. We went there, and actually went back to where we were staying, where we were camped out, and we left the area completely, and he got better as we left. Uh, the next afternoon, we went there to pick up our equipment, took more photographs, and while we were doing that, we we knew there was another group of people wandering in the woods, and we heard these voices, and I remember clearly hearing something that sounded like a cowbell and like the creak of wagon wheels. Yeah. Uh, it seemed to be in one direction, and then coming from the other direction with the group that we knew were there, uh, I believe you, Paul, and someone else uh, followed the sound, and it kind of went into an area that was completely overgrown and impassable. Yes. And, um, yeah, and that's largely the memory I have of... Uh, I, I, I remember exactly, I remember that, that incident at night, because it was just outside where the cemetery should have been, and I remember mm-hmm. that as if it happened last night, and, and that, that invisible ox cart driver, as I've come to call him over the years... Uh, other people have reported that, uh, several other people, one of whom we know pretty well, uh, Tom, uh, Tom D'Agostino. Uh, oh, yes. A uh, well-known author. He lives in Putnam, and um, we, we see him now and then. He, we have the same publisher, and, and he, uh, he's a, a good fellow, and he, he's heard that as well as, as, well as a lot of other people. Um, I, I considered that kind of a, um, a life-changing experience. I know you did, too, but it certainly shot the heck out of that purgatory theory I heard. And uh, there's a whole chapter on this in the book. And there are a number of things, Joseph, that I, I feelings I had, things of that kind that I, that I dismissed at the time. And I never really, I don't think we ever really talked about them. Um, but, you know, perhaps it, it, we're going to send you a copy of our new book and, and you can see what it says in that chapter about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, also, <clears throat> you were uh, an invaluable fellow when it came to doing the legwork for us and research in um, some other cases as well. Uh, one of them is a case we've never really talked much about on the show, and that's the Bristol, Connecticut poltergeist of um, 1975. And there was a, I mean, we got involved in this case because there was, and you came with me on a lot of these visits, uh, with Brian Dow, who was a well-known um, radio, actually at the time, cable television personality. Uh, in oh, Connecticut. Yeah, back in the pioneering days of cable TV. Exactly. I believe it was the first cable television station in Connecticut. And he uh, had been on the radio for many years. I think it was WTIC in Hartford. And uh, he had called us in on, on this case in uh, Bristol uh, on top of a hill. And uh, the, this particular house was having some difficulties. And they were hearing growling under furniture and a lot of negative stuff. And the woman had looked out. Uh, and you probably remember this, looked out of her window, as she said, and had seen a dark figure moving across this field. And you remember that broken-down shed across the road from there? Mm-hmm. 
there was a very strange house next to it. The men were tearing it down and had felt, so they said, uh, hands around their throats and all this business and uh, had refused to continue to work at the site. But this was the first time, in my experience anyway, that there were... Um, signs of a an entity or whatever phenomena affecting an entire neighborhood rather than one house and since then we found they can affect you know hundreds of square miles never mind you know just uh, single houses so what was your experience on that case i know you did a lot of uh, research and records and things of this kind yeah nothing quite as uh, dramatic as the pomfret case no um, basically if i recall i was primarily doing research into the history of the place previous owners deed searches uh, very actually dull work, uh, but necessary groundwork. Um, I think there was only maybe one time was actually on site and dealt with the people, but it was mostly, uh, what you were, uh, dealing with. And then I don't even think I saw it through to the end, because I think after that I was back at school in Massachusetts. Yeah, well, yeah. boarding school. Yes. You know, so my involvement there was, uh, limited and I thought it was uh, reform you school you were oh. to do. Okay. Hmm. All right. Well, so in, in ensuing years, and, you know, we, we've always been in touch. Um, we don't see each other a lot because you're in Chicago and we're in the East Coast, but uh, have you encountered, did you find any experience you got with us, and maybe I'm assuming a lot here, uh, when you uh, have come through life and, and encountered different situations, have you ever found your experience uh, to be valuable in, in helping other people with any other cases? And, and have you uh, run into any other cases at all uh, in, in the ensuing years? Have you been active uh, in any any meaningful way, as they might say? Um, I can't really say that I have. I mean, there's an ongoing interest in, uh, as a teacher, especially since... Uh, Let's see, The Conjuring and the movie about Annabelle came out. Uh, I've gotten a lot of cred with my students since I know uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren Yeah, uh, and everything. But uh, every so often you encounter something, it might be found that someone has heard or strange things that appear in photographs and they're trying to figure it out. Mm. But uh, unfortunately, I haven't been able to focus in on it. As much as I would have liked to have over the years, so the sure. things kind of pushed that aside. Yeah. Well, knowing your lovely wife, I'm not so sure she would have been as willing as mine was to get out my, one, at least one of my sons involved in this. Hey. Um, yeah. So, um, what? Um, oh, now I lost my train of thought. You uh, drove it out of my head there, Elvis. I'm really good at this game. It's not Elvis Fonzie. Fonzie, sorry. Okay, whatever. My cultural knowledge is very, very limited. But um, what uh, one of the things that, that's happened, too, is uh, have you changed your opinion, uh, even as one who follows the subject, about what might be some of the causes of this? As, if, as you may know, we, we have changed uh, dramatically from the uh, whole residual haunting kind of idea that, that we were early advocates of, uh, you and I, back in those days. Uh, but what, what have your opinions changed? Uh, Changed much at all, or are you, have you looked uh, as with an interest at quantum mechanics or other areas, uh, sort of non-classical interpretations of various paranormal phenomena? Um, haven't, again, haven't had as much opportunity. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, if it's not going to be a spoiler uh, for the upcoming book, is what's your take on what you experienced at conference that day now? Okay, well, yeah, well, again, that, that there's a chapter on that in the book, but until people read it, um, I think. We were dealing with an area. Uh, well, first, let me tell you what I didn't tell you at the time, okay? Or, or really, 
I don't yeah. think, in ensuing years. When I was there, I felt... You, you, now, you weren't there on the first trip when we heard the, the laughter of the children. Because uh, we stood up on yeah, that... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, you know the, the place from which we heard this. It was the steps on that stone wall above Nightingale Brook. And we heard... And that's where we set up a recording. Before. Exactly, in hopes of catching this again, because other people have reported it as well. The laughter of a group of children. We couldn't see them. They were down by the brook, and they, they were moving. This was it was really strange, moving rapidly up and down the brook at great speed, you know, like back and forth. And looking at, you know, much later, and of course it would not record on the uh, primitive device we had. We had a, uh, it wasn't quite reel-to-reel. It was an old cassette tape recorder, so not quite the sophisticated stuff they have today. But it didn't record, but we all heard it. And it was moving up and down rapidly. And uh, I think that today, given particularly uh, the theories of time and space, particularly in the, the general relativity theory, time and space are curved. Because when whenever I have run toward a, a sound like that, uh, and I've done that on several occasions, you get, and it's just over there. You run there, and it's just over here. Because time and space are curved. Theoretically, and well, really in, in physics, it's pretty much been proven. But yeah. whether that's the res- the reason for this experience is another question. But I think I think it is. So I think we're dealing more with time and space and physics, although, albeit really weird physics, than we are with death or spirits or anything of this kind. That's my personal opinion, and other people, um, some people agree, not a lot. That's why we're not really invited to speak at a lot of paranormal conventions as opposed to UFO conventions where we're welcome, because we're not good for business. You know, Joseph, a lot of these people make livings at this. We do not. I'm still a working journalist. Ben, Ben's a working guy, too. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we do this. We put a lot of time in this, but we don't uh, make a living at it. So I think that the Pomfret case essentially was an, was an exercise in a very bizarre experience of... Um, Multiple worlds and, uh, a la quantum, quantum physics. Uh, that's why the people did not seem, and I call them people, not ghosts, did not seem to be dead at all. They seem to be just going about their lives and, 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 uh, the, the really. Right, and you usually would associate with, you know, uh, ghostly behavior, trying to communicate a message or something. Well, they would have been unaware of our presence. Well, the exception to that, I'm not sure, so sure they were unaware because I, Names came to my mind, and, and I tried to dismiss it. I knew, I believed, a couple of the, the names of those children. I knew the name of that guy going by on the ox cart. Okay. Now, ironically enough, I don't know if I've ever told you this. I later found out, you know, much later, that you remember, you remember the, the one of the main families there was the Randall family. I found mm-hmm. out that I'm related to the Randalls. Rather, rather close oh. cousins, as a matter of fact. And one of the reasons that I brought Ben in on this once we thought he was ready was that I was interested in seeing whether blood relatives have similar uh, responses to these kinds of stimuli. And I started not mm-hmm. with Ben, but with my cousin uh, in in the Eastern Connecticut, <laughs> who's a great guy, and he came with us on a really strange case in the Abington Library, right near that Pomfret site, and. Um, you know, I'm sure you remember that that library, um, mm. you know, where where there was a strange um, sort of a materialization of water, so to speak. It would the cellar stairs in the library w- would drip water, and there was no source for it that we could see. That sort of thing. So that was the whole area is interesting that way. But yeah, I think it was uh, essentially an experience of um, 
parallel realities. Now, the one thing where you might agree with me that we, there was uh, apparently some, perhaps some sort of communication was when Marcel was having that experience. And you were the, I remember, I, I remember, I can see it clearly, you were standing with him and you called to us because we were ahead a little bit. And he was on that path with his walking stick, sobbing, you know. And as you said, a very, very no-nonsense, feet-on-the-ground kind of fellow and not the sort of person who would be affected emotionally by anything like this. And he, um, I remember we tried to physically pull him forward and to the left, which was the direction of the cemetery. He could not literally be moved. It was as if he was rooted to the spot as if it was some sort of electrical phenomenon. But he could move freely back and to the right. And because uh, you were one of the ones who tried yeah, to help he us pull, said he wanted to go in the direction we were trying to pull. Yeah, just to bring himself to do it. So theoretically, and see what you think of this. Theoretically, we could have been. And again, when you're having a paranormal experience, if this multiple worlds thing is true, you may be partially across the membrane, as a or brain b r a n e, as a physicist would call it, and you might be partially in their world, and they might be in yours. And you remember, what, there's one thing that uh, you didn't mention. Remember the, those, the muttering of the men we couldn't see right near us when that was occurring? And, you know, we could tell it was in English, but, you know, we really couldn't tell what was being said. Uh, I mean, taking, yeah. this, taking this to its logical or illogical conclusion, it's possible we may have crossed a, a brain enough to have been present at, the funeral or one of the first funerals that were ever held in that cemetery and somebody heard or because or, that cemetery was was notoriously haunted since the 1700s if this if this is correct our interpretation we may have been among the first ghosts experienced at that site because we very often find that, that the so-called ghosts are afraid of us because they think we're ghost haunting them because they see us in the same way we see them across these electromagnetic membranes so it's wild but I think it's a lot more interesting than some of the superstitious approach. But what say you on all that? I know you're not well, a physicist. It's but so the, um, right. Neither uh, am I. I do play one in the classroom on occasion. <laughs> okay. Um, the, um, who uh, would interest me or what I'm curious about would be the, the time differential. We're hearing ox parts and then you're thinking that the ghost that they might have perceived that gave it the reputation as haunted would have been us. Maybe, uh, yeah. Like 150 years later, right. Uh, you know, that hypothesis about 150 years ago. How would you handle the, the like, the time differential? Well, because... You know, oh, box parts and us. Yeah, sure. I know, I get you. No, that's a good question. Well, in, in quantum mechanics, one of, one of the major interpretations of quantum physics in this vein and the multiple worlds interpretation is that all, what to us is the past and the, and the future are all simultaneous. Our experience of time is purely uh, subjective and is, as Einstein said, a sort of a function of our consciousness. You know, it really, time really does not exist in the way we experience it. And you can see evidence of that in psychological time when somebody says, oh, well, boy, this day really flew by, and everybody said, what do you mean? It sort of dragged for me, and, and you know, that is a possible indication. But uh, because these things are taking place simultaneously, and our brains have developed to the point where maybe we can be aware of uh, just connecting. Remember, we used to use the analogy of a radio back in those days. You know, if you're tuned to the right frequency, you can experience this. So maybe, maybe that's what you're really experiencing. So essentially, uh, you know, there's a Russian, uh, there's a Russian theologian uh, scientist uh, actually named Pavel Florensky, and he writes uh, about oh, that yeah, yeah. something like that in respect to dreams, where. Uh, as you, you know, when you're woken up, let's say, by an alarm clock, 
or a ringing sound. It turns out to be your alarm clock when you wake up. But in the dream, it doesn't happen instantly. There's a setup or a buildup. Events are occurring within your dream that finally culminate in, let's say, the alarm yes. uh, going off. But the alarm is still a future event. It hasn't occurred yet. It's somehow shaping the path of your dream. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know, and the whole deja vu yeah. experience. You know, could could be explained in that way. You know, deja vu is, as we we know is is the experience of feeling that you've been, you know, what whatever's happening to you at that time. You feel you've been there before. Or it's happened to you before, and that's um, very easily explained by the notion of simultaneity of time. It's just it, the real mystery is what why do you why are you aware of that at that moment? Why are you aware of that in that place? You know, Ben, what do you think? Well, I mean, why not? Well, <laughs> Yes. I guess, I don't know, it's it's hard to, how, how to put it, it's hard to put a sort of like set, set number of requirements for some sort of experience to occur because we don't even know ourselves what entirely it does. We have, we have a vague notion that maybe, I don't know, maybe electromagnetics has something to do with it. And we also have a vague notion that maybe brain chemistry has some something to do with it. But really, there's... What we have is not really much to go on. Only well, and there's no time to get into the holographic theory. No. But we are burning up this hour, uh, Joseph, a lot. So tell us again about yourself, where people can find out more about you. And you have written a book or two, not necessarily in this field. So so tell us where people can find out more about you if you want them to. Ooh, I can't imagine why anyone would. Uh, I'm <laughs> a humble teacher and part-time writer and a voracious reader. And you're an outstanding uh, in teacher. Area. And um, let's see, most of my writings are in, uh, you know, the areas of theology and philosophy, written uh, occasionally published in the school uh, journals, and um, you know things like that. So there's a very small readership, and uh, which seems to be kind of fine. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what I'm basically. I guess if I was summarizing myself, I would be someone. Um, consumed by curiosity about everything. You know, um, I think it was Alexander, I, I put this once on a, a poster in my classroom. There's a quotation, you know, the proper study of man is man, Alexander Pope. And then underneath that, I put the proper study of man is everything. <laughs> That's then, right. Uh, yeah. put, uh, you know, my uh, name as well. You mentioned quantum uh, mechanics, quantum physics. Uh, I just encountered a book which attempts to apply that uh, to evolution and how somehow the shape and direction of movement from, you know, energy to matter to life and finally to mind, uh, that somehow that might have been uh, directed and guided by uh, the very essence of quantum mechanics. That's yeah. An interesting idea I hope to uh, look at among numerous other things. I described myself once as a serial hobbyist. Yeah. Well, as as I try to be. You are certainly a Renaissance man, and uh, I'm thinking also of uh, Professor Ahmad Gatswami's book. He's been a guest on the show uh, on the subject of quantum economics. So it has its uh, little fingers into just about every part of reality here. But again, uh, as Ben and I say, it's always the first day of school. And uh, we keep learning. Joseph, we're out of time. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was a great conversation. And I, I, I uh, look nostalgically back on our old days of gathering in my attic and uh, talking about the same stuff a million years ago. Yeah, so, and congratulations, 666 broadcast. 
Uh, yeah, well, happy, yeah, that's it. Have a 657th. But uh, congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> and be- best to your family. We love you. All right. Take care. Love you, too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, Ben, take it away. Alrighty, so our new book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, will be released on November 28th and will be in bookstores everywhere, and that is available on Amazon.com right now. And our book launch event will be held at the Cumberland, Rhode Island uh, Public Library on Thursday, December 1st. Uh, that is from 6 to 8 p.m. And uh, we will make a presentation. Books will be on sale, and uh, we will sign them. And for more information, you can visit BehindTheParanormal.com or you can call the library at 401 333 uh, 2552, extension 128. So that's 128. Um, the event is free, but registration is required, and you can register by phone or online at cumberlandlibrary.org and click on the events tab, then scroll down to December 1st, and there is a limit of 100 people, so please register now. And uh, there will be lots of events at bookstores throughout the Northeast and beyond following that. And I wanted to thank WON 1240 and our wonderful station manager here, Dave Richards, for sponsoring uh, this book launch event at the Cumberland Library. Oh, yes. And uh, do not forget about our YouTube channel that's uh, Behind the Paranormal uh, with Paul and Ben Eno. And we have all a couple of videos up there. And we're working on some more material for you as well. And that sh- We're going to be doing it every once every two weeks because once a week has been very, very... Uh, challenging because we both are, are working a lot, <laughs> doing, <laughs> doing our doing our own different things and finding time is is indeed hard. So that will so our uh, third video will be up very soon. That'll be about paranormal and human history, and uh, that will be uploaded soon. You can find that at our Facebook page. That's uh, behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, and you can subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can get updates all the time about our material. There's also a link on our website behindtheparanormal.com. That too. Big YouTube symbol, so I can just click that. Uh, meanwhile, find out more about the show, uh, public appearances, and more at that site, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you'll find nearly 700 free recorded shows from both ON1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. And you can find my other books uh, on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, and uh, Barnes & Noble Nook. But if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, I will sign them for you, and you will help us keep all those pod- podcasts and recorded shows free. Also on our website, you'll find direct links to several of the charities that Ben and I have adopted, including USACares.org uh, for veterans and Canadian Veterans Advocacy, and also Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, doing great stuff out there for at-risk youth in that city. That's YouthMentoring.org. And uh, I should say that... Um, the uh, maybe the days of our recession sale may be over because the books were all ten dollars, but but since we have another publisher for our, our new book, it's going to be sixteen ninety nine. <laughs> However, there are uh, cheaper ways you can do that. So in any case, uh, we will sign off here. Uh, if I can. So next Sunday, phone. November twentieth, uh, we will take the hour to review the f- the phenomena and the cases in our new book that's behind the paranormal. Everything you know is wrong. And we leave you with a quote from the ancient Greek storyteller Aesop: "Now, no acts of kindness, however small, is ever wasted." And I'm be- uh, well. You didn't say who you were. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and